songwriters from every genre, every generation have given us songs about trouble. Songs like, Trouble Loves Me, Here Comes Trouble, Trouble Again, or just Trouble. And why do songwriters give us these songs about trouble? Well, they're trying to strike a chord with us because they're reminding us of what we all know is true. We like our light and fluffy songs about fantasy and about love and about romance and different kinds of pop songs, but since we all know that we live in a troubled world and we live troubled lives, every generation, every genre, every wise songwriter taps into our feelings and our realities and reminds us that trouble is all around us. We don't like to talk about it, and yet there's something in us that wants to talk about it because it's real. Think about your life. I realize you didn't come to church this morning to talk about your troubled life, but trouble in your home, trouble at work, trouble in relationships, maybe trouble with your parents, trouble with your kids, trouble with your finances, trouble with lack of relationships, trouble with church. We have national troubles. We have international troubles. It's all around us. Broken world, broken lives. We know it's true. Now I have a question for you. Is it better for us as Christians? Or is it worse for us as Christians? Broken world, sin has made terrible things happen in this world, continues to be that way. Is it better for you as a Christian in a broken world? Or is it, or is it, is it worser? just to get your attention. Is it worse? It's kind of a trick question, I think. It's better in a sense, right? It's better to live in this broken world as a Christian because at least we know that it's going to be fixed. At least we're not in opposition to God anymore. He's not in opposition to us anymore. Not only that, it's better for us as, a Christian, as Christians because at least you know if you're a Christian. The Christ, the historic Christ, the God-man who walked on your planet, atoned for your rebellion and was bodily raised from the dead, not just for himself. In particular, he was raised from the dead, not for himself, but for you and for me. He's called the firstborn among many, and he's talking about everyone who believes in him. So in one sense, it's way better because we know how it ends. We're not, our hope is not in hope. Our hope is in the real Christ who's really been raised from the dead, who's really promised to return again. And so in so many ways, for us as Christians, it's way better. And in other ways, it's worse. If you turn to your Bibles to Luke 17, Jesus has been talking about the, the worser side of things, at least in the short run. In some ways, it's worse because Jesus hasn't come back yet. We're, we're living in the in-between time. Uh, he, he's gone. He didn't orphan us. He sent his spirit. But, but nevertheless, there is the emphasis on until he comes back, things won't be made right. And so he's gone. And, and, and here we are in the in-between time. And if you're a Christian, to one degree or another, 
Different seasons look a little bit differently, but if you're a Christian, the unbelieving world is going to be hostile to you. So we're all in this together, believer and unbeliever, in a broken world with trouble. And then we have more trouble if we're Christians, sometimes at the hands of non-Christians. And so in that sense, it's not better, it's actually worse. And just to give you a flavor, a sampling of this, um, in Luke 17, verse 22, it says, And he said to, to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And in our context, I'm not going to retrace it, but, but I think it's in the context of you're going to be suffering and things are not going to be going well for you and you're going to, you're going to long for the coming of Messiah and, and, and it won't be. And then, I won't take the time to read it, but in verses 26 and following, he likens uh, these days and in particular the days before he comes back to the days of Noah, and what he means is it, the world's going to be uh, overrun by godlessness, people who ignore God. Uh, and then he talks about the days of Lot, godlessness, they're ignoring God. Well, insofar as we're still around during these times, it's not good for us where it's godless because we're belonging to Christ, belonging to God, and so there's, t- there's tension, there's, there's, there's conflict, there's problems. talks about the Son of Man revealed, days of Lot, days of Noah. And then I would like you to draw your attention to verse 33 where it says, Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. It's in the context of, of, of conflict and suffering and oppression, not just in the general broken world, but, but with hostility uh, from the godless. You know, standing firm for Christ, doing the right thing, honoring God with your life uh, 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 in the backdrop, against the backdrop of godlessness. If you seek to keep your life, you'll lose it. You seek to lose your life, you find it. The idea is of, of, of faithfully associating with Christ even to the end. That's the right thing to do. But he wouldn't have to say things like that if everything was so good. Isn't everything wonderful and great and everything is easy and no conflict? None of these things would even make sense. Next question I have for you right now. How are you feeling right about now? (laughs) How does it make you feel? Broken world, broken bodies, broken finances, broken homes, broken relationships. Oh, and by the way, it's going to be worse for you if you're a Christian. Because you're also going to have unbelievers not liking you. Living amidst ungodless living. How you feeling? I'm not feeling so good about it. I don't like it. I'd be lying. Oh, everything's fine. Everything's wonderful. Kind of like we do at church on Sundays. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. You know, cheesy grin. It's interesting in God's providence how this works, knowing that we're going to talk about trouble today and, and trying to be encouraged amidst discouragement. Uh, there are at least a few people who are, who are candid this morning. This doesn't always happen. I appreciate it. Unless you're living in denial, maybe today's going well, but you're not feeling too good about it. 
And if you're feeling good today, it'll come. (laughs) Reality will set in. And Jesus knows that his disciples would feel that way. And so chapter 18 comes. And so this morning we're going to be in the gospel according to Luke, the gospel of Jesus according to Luke. It was just, uh, we just saw in chapter 17, conflict, conflict coming, difficulty coming, be steadfast, broken world, conflict from unbelievers. And he, he knows his disciples are going to feel badly discouraged, down, depressed, frustrated. And so he gives encouragement in the first eight verses of chapter 18. So that's where we're going to be today. Verses 1 to 8, Luke 18, some encouragement amidst discouragement. And if you'd like to take notes and have an outline, we'll look at four actions that will keep you from being overwhelmed by discouragement. Four actions that will keep you from being overwhelmed by discouragement. First action, always pray. Always pray. Look what it says in verse 1. And he told them a parable, remember after telling them kind of the bad news, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So so that's a good place to start. He knows what he tells them are going to cause, uh, lead to them having burdens, right? And heavy heartedness and maybe want to lose heart and say, if God loves us, why would this be the case? And why is my life so messed up? And why are things so difficult? And why this conflict? And why that conflict? And uh, I give up. So he says, the parable is going to come. And, and the gist of it, so we can jump ahead, the gist of it is always pray. And always pray so you don't lose heart. That's a good place to start. Now, we're going to talk more about the details, but I just want to isolate just that for now. Always pray. Maybe I should be more specific. Always pray, we're going to see in the context, to God who cares. He's not just asking for psychological therapy. You know, if you go to, what website did I go to? I went to uh, psychcentral.com. Uh, and psychcentral.com, you know, talks about these studies that have been done. The medical professionals figure out that people who pray heal faster and people who are religious are in touch with spirituality. And if you pray, then it's going to be better for you. He's not talking about that. That all might be true, but the, the emphasis we're going to see is always pray. Pray to God, the God who cares, the God who can, the God who is powerful, the God who sent his son for you. But before we get to those things, let's just see for now... Always pray. So let's at least keep it basic for now. Life stinks at times. Broken world, broken everything. And it seems like when it rains, it pours sometimes. I want to get better at taking Jesus' words to heart and and responding and saying, God, help! Please! Help me with my marriage. Help me with my kids. Help me with my parents. Help me with my job. Help me with my church family. Help. I need help. It's troubling. I feel like I'm going to lose heart. I'm overwhelmingly discouraged. God, help me. I like it that we read a desperate psalm this morning. And maybe it would help us to read desperate psalms so that we at least get used to the fact that prayer isn't always so nice and neat. And now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul do keep, you know. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with formal kind of praying. 
But when you read the Psalms, you get this sense of, you know, it's not so nice and neat. Sometimes it's just, God help me, and God why, and, and I'm confused, and I know who you are, and, and I long for you to act. So that you don't lose heart, because you're going to want to lose heart. Always pray, God help, please. We got to start there. We got to start there. I like the one another's in the Bible, and I might need to say, "Hey, could you help me? I've got a burden. Can you help me bear this burden?" And there's a place for that. That's just not what Jesus is talking about here. And maybe sometimes that's all we do to try to not lose heart. Whereas we can call out to God, always be praying, always be praying. Specifically, prayer to God. And we're going to see that as we move on. I just wanted to isolate it before we moved on to the next. The, the, and really, in a sense, the isolation is artificial, but I at least want to just, just camp on that for a moment. Let's move to a second action that will keep you from being overwhelmed by discouragement. Learn from unlikely sources. Learn from unlikely sources. And now we get into the parable. Verse 2. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice or give me fairness, give me equity uh, against my adversary. Verse 4 says, for a while he refused. The unjust judge refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Piece of work, right? Total piece of work. He's a judge. He's supposed to stand for justice. He's an unjust judge. Contradiction in terms. And here's someone who has a need, apparently from what's going to happen, a legitimate gripe, if you will, there's been a legitimate legal violation and he, he won't have anything to do with it. But eventually he does because he's tired of getting pestered. And you just roll your eyes and say, what, what a joker. This is terrible. I would never be able to learn anything from an un, unjust judge. Let's keep going. Verse 6. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. Really? Of all people? Verse 7. And will not God, the idea is, who's so very different. He's not saying God is the, is the unjust judge. He's so very different. Will not God, verse 7, give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. It's pretty simple to understand what he's saying, right? Here's this unjust judge, this total piece of work guy who doesn't do the right thing until he's just bothered so much that he'll do the right thing. And then he says, now you, you disciples, you believers who belong to God through me, he's right, he's saying this to Christians like us. Surely, if you cry out to God day and night in your desperation, God, who you belong to by virtue of his plan and purpose... He even says elect. We'll get to that in a little while. He'll hear you. 
He'll act. So we learn from an unlikely source. In this case, the needy, becking, desperate woman and the bad guy judge who eventually gives in. God isn't the bad guy judge who eventually gives in. He loves you and cares for you and you belong to him. Ask. Back to the prayer emphasis. When your life is rotten and your circumstances are terrible, always pray. Always pray to God who you know about, who is powerful, who cares, who will, who is fair, who does provide. This is a super simple message. It's just hard to do. too easy for us to just live in denial and act like everything's okay. Jesus expects his disciples to not live in denial. Things are going to be bad. So you ask, and you keep asking. Day and night you ask, but you ask knowing that God cares. Knowing that he will help. It doesn't mean he's going to help the way you think he should help. It doesn't mean he's going to help on your time frame. But the idea is he's going to help you. Absolutely he's going to help you. So let me encourage you to not only, you know, white knuckle it and grin and bear it. Cry out to God. Do notice that he does say, crying day and night. So again, he, he teaches that God will help, but with the crying day and night, apparently he, he may not help when you, when you think the help should arrive. <laughs> or in the way you think it should arrive. Or you just say one time, God, here's it, here's what I want. And it'd be done. I just wrote down a, a quick list. God, help me with my job or lack of. God, help me with my friends or lack of. God, help me with my enemies. God, help me with my money or lack of. God, help me with my spouse or lack of. God, help me with my kids or lack of. God, help me with my parents or lack of. God, help me with my boss. God, help me with church members. God, help me with divisive people. God, help me. God, help me. God, help me. If you're in touch with reality at all, you, you see it's a troubled place. First go-to is going to God before we get to those one another's, it would seem to me. This is a bit off topic, but I do um, want to sort of push pause and... Um, not talk about trouble for a second, and I just can't pass this up. I want you to notice something before we move on to the third action that will help you to be, um, not to be overwhelmed. Let's just pause for a second and at least see um, a thing or two about that, that bad judge that we roll our eyes at. Let's at least see what makes him a bad judge. Again, a little off topic, but can't pass this up. Not only does the parable say here's why he's a bad judge, 
he himself acknowledges why he's a bad judge. Interesting. Justice, if you notice, in verses 4 and 5, is tied to not fearing God and not respecting human beings, man. It says, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice. Notice, justice is tied to fearing God and respecting man. You're not the ultimate end. You have a judge that you will be judged by. Okay? Starts with fear of God. Justice is driven by that. But it's also tied to really acknowledging someone's made in the image of God is, what, is, is another way of saying it. We just can't pass that up. I mean, ultimate reference point and understanding and having fairness and having equity and having justice ultimate reference point, whether we live in denial of it or not, would be a God who we're accountable to. And not only that, but the way we treat each other as image bearers. And to the degree that, let's talk about this on an ethics vantage point, to the degree that I deny what God says about human beings, that they're made in God's image like I am, I'm not going to seek their good and their welfare, and I'm not going to seek what's right for them when pressed, interestingly enough. Interestingly enough, in this parable, even the unbeliever acknowledges that. Okay, I'm going to do the right thing. Uh, I'm going to at least pretend for a moment in order to do the right thing that I acknowledge God and I acknowledge His image bearers. Okay, let's move on. Back, back to the script. Back to what we need to, to, to get back to. Uh, the third action that will help us from being overwhelmed by discouragement. Number three, learn from the elective purposes of God. Learn from the elective purposes of God. We've already covered this, but I've got to isolate it because it's overlooked. This is another unlikely place to turn. Okay, my life is bad and things are bad and circumstances are bad and people are opposing me for, for Christian reasons and for other reasons and life stinks and all that kind of stuff. And What do we say to each other? Well, Jesus says, remember the doctrine of election. <gasps> you know, that's like more terrifying for lots of church members than going to a haunted house on Halloween last Friday night. He said election in church? it's meant to be comforting oh pastor please would you please quote Jesus for me today because my life is falling apart pastor please would you please preach a sermon on predestination and election that would be the idea get, help me to get through my troubled times when things don't seem to look like God is for me because my circumstances are in the toilet. Well, isn't that interesting? Verse 7. And will not God give justice to His elect, to His chosen, who cry to Him day and night? And what's the implied answer? Of course He will. Absolutely. We, of course. And He's assuming they absolutely, no matter what, believe in the doctrine of election. 
No controversy there. How could anybody be saved apart from it? And he's drawing upon that theology of it to encourage them. My life looks like God doesn't care. Well, yeah, it's in a broken world and Christ hasn't returned yet. But you know what you can cling to? You can cling to the fact that surely God will give to his elect what is good for them. He said, oh, yeah. That transcends my circumstances as I can see them. Not only that, in Ephesians chapter 1, you've got God cho- choosing us before the foundation of the world, and then it ties in with its, its friend complementary doctrine, the doctrine of predestination. <gasps> That's like a double whammy, scary, terrifying, just after Halloween, double whammy. No, 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 no. Predestination, what does that mean? Well, I went to public school, I can tell you. Destination predetermined ahead of time. I'm a genius. It's amazing. If that is true, then tractor beam, salvation, doctrine, sanctification, glorification, it's going to happen. So when Pat Abendroth's life looks like it's a shambles, which happens too often, what a glorious, great, grand reality God will surely provide for and take care of His elect destination secured. Romans chapter 8, right? By the way, Romans the Apostle Paul got this. Romans 8.33, our same word. Who, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Implied answer is nobody. So, if your life... No. When your life... It's causing you to want to lose heart. You pray. You pray to the God who cares. You pray to the God who elects. Surely He's going to provide. Surely He's going to do that. And what's amazing in Romans chapter 8 is it's all developed as nothing will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. It's tied to this elect idea. In the Bible, election and predestination are not boastful things because all of us deserve condemnation. But to think that God does this is meant to be something you can draw upon for, for getting through the hard times. God saves from beginning to end. It's an unlikely place to turn in your desperate times. But it's what Jesus says. Amidst the swelling and surging of my troubles, I want to pray. I want to pray to a God who elects. Nothing will be able to separate us from His love. That sustains us. It helps us. It's the God to whom we pray. That's why we say theology matters. Don't you like this? Maybe not. Let's not take a vote. Um... I mean, for me, I know this. I know God loves. I know He cares. I know I'm supposed to pray. I know, I believe with all my heart, election, predestination. And you know, I'm still having a really hard time. But I can't imagine coping and dealing with 
brokenness if I didn't know those things. You know, it's not the silver bullet that just makes it makes me feel good all the time. I still feel rotten too much of the time. But take that away? I'm devastated. So let me encourage you to, to look deeply into the things of God and His salvation and His character and His sovereignty. And I'm not saying it's going to make your life, you know, cheesy grin all the time. Everything's fine, you know. My life is perfect. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that these things are, are given to us because they're true, but they're given to us to, do, to draw upon it and to say, who is God? He's the God who cares. He's the God who, who, who elects. And he's the God who, who does all these things perfectly in Christ. And so I'm going to say, God, help me. Surely won't that God take care of his elect? Yeah, the answer Jesus is assuming is what? Absolutely he will. Absolutely he will. Now, one puzzling thing about this that, that I don't understand, and some things in the Bible are easier to understand than others, um, back to verse 7. Will he delay long over them? Will he delay long over them, his elect? Well, we, we know he only has good for his elect, but will he delay long over them? And the implied answer is no. But then verse 8 says, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. That's why the implied answer is no. And I have to just say to you, I don't really know how that works. <laughs> I can't remember how many different views are listed in one of the better commentaries. Too many. And, and it's part of this complicated reality, from our perspective at least, when we read the New Testament, between what has been secured for us in Christ and is a done deal, and yet we long for and we wait for Christ's return, and no matter what things practically, functionally, experientially, that's the word I was looking for, are not going to become uh, all that they will be until he comes back. And, and it ends up being complicated from our perspective. So it says, since it says um, it'll be speedily done, I mean, I agree, I think that's true. I just don't know exactly how that looks. Because I'm still waiting for him to return. And so some, some would say, well, when he does come, it'll happen fast. I, that's nice and neat, but it doesn't make that much sense to me. And that might be the idea. Um, but it seems it, the intent is more along the lines of this should comfort you. He'll answer you and he'll answer you quickly. And yet in our context, you've got conflict in chapter 17. So much conflict that you'll be waiting for the Son of Man to return. You, you'll want it to happen, but it won't be happening yet. Um, and then even in our chapter, it's day and night asking. Well, if speedily means if I just ask one time, it's done, my problem is taken care of, then why would I have to ask day and night? And I'm just being honest with you saying it's a little bit complicated as to what Jesus means. But what I do know is it will work out good. <laughs> God is not like the unjust judge. He does care for his elect. And he will respond, and he responds, it says speedily. If we want to cheat and go to other passages in the Bible, which isn't really cheating, um, maybe the idea is along the lines of what Peter says regarding God's timing as it relates to the return of Christ. I, I don't know for sure. 
Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8 says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day as, is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I'm not sure. But I do know that God cares. And He cares uniquely and specially for His elect. And so I'm going to cry out to him for help day and night, knowing that it will all end well, knowing that he cares, knowing that he answers. It might, not, it might just not be the answer I want when I want it. His elective purposes are, are, are good and right. And then finally, number four, uh, fourth action that will keep you from or help you to keep from being overwhelmed by discouragement in a discouraging world. Number four, don't learn from so-called Christians. Don't learn from so-called Christians. Verse 8 ends with saying, Nevertheless, He said all these good things about his elect. He said all these good things about God caring and taking care of. But in a second coming, return of Christ kind of context, nevertheless, when the Son of Man, Jesus speaking of himself as the Messiah, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Rhetorical question. Bent toward the negative. Right? Here's what's true and promised to the elect of God, so pray and draw upon that, disciples. But I do need to say this. When the Son of Man returns, will He find faith on earth? Suggesting that there'll be a whole lot of unbelief. A whole lot of unbelief. So much so as will He find any believing? Interesting. In the flow of things, I think it serves as as a kind of warning. Okay, amidst desperate times in a broken, desperate world where people will oppose you for my name, cry out to God, pray always. You know that God will take care of His elect. But when I do come back, Will I find faith on the earth? Maybe a lot of professing Christians even do lose heart in a final sort of way. And they stop crying out to God. And they stop confiding in Him because the world is messed up. I'm a Christian. My life shouldn't be messed up. And I've about had it. And there's no more dependence, no more reliance, no more expression of faith, of trust, of confidence. I probably would interpret the verse differently if it wasn't in the flow that it's in. But in the flow that it's in, I think it's a warning. And if you've been a Christian very long at all, you've watched people who profess faith 
and things get hard and there's conflict and there's hostility, sort of like the different soils that Jesus talks about in Matthew 13. And some who professed no longer do. And it's sad and it's hard and it's frustrating, heartbreaking. It's one of my worst things. It's one of my very worst things in life. But measuring right up there next to that is watching other professing Christians follow them in their discouragement or getting all wrapped up in their unbelief really is what it is. We have to remember broken world, broken lives, frustration, conflict, personally, interpersonally, in the church, out of the church, nationally, internationally, broken bodies. This is not the kingdom. Even though we belong to the coming kingdom, even though we're in Christ and it's all ours, if you believed in Jesus because somebody told you now your life is going to be all together, and now you're going to be healthy. And now you're not going to have problems anymore. And now all your relationships will be good. They didn't tell you the truth. You will be good with God. <laughs> God will accept you. Not because of your acceptability, but because of Christ. Because your sins have been pardoned. They, they've been atoned for. And you've been forgiven. And you've been reconciled and restored. And in Christ, all of these things are sure. And He's been raised from the dead. So you will be raised from the dead. And, and, and the Bible can talk about you, your life that will be perfect. But when we forget that it will be perfect, and we think it's going to be perfect now, we're not listening to Jesus. And, and we're easy pickings for the frustration to, 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 to cause loss of heart. And it's a sad thing. Don't learn from those people. Don't learn from them. Learn from Jesus, who gives the somber warning. There are going to be people who fizzle out. Will the Son of Man find faith on the earth? Well, see, I just gave you more trouble. In a sense, Jesus just gave you more trouble. We talked about trouble with finances, trouble. Now it's even more troubling. Me watching people who have influenced my life. Me watching people who have served in Christian ministry. Me watching people you add to the list and then they stop crying out to God and they stop trusting God. And sure, I know First John 2.19, those who went out from us were never really of us. I, I know that. But it still makes it really hard. If it wasn't really hard, I think there would be something wrong. So life is even more complicated. I hear, I hear somebody will tell me, oh, I saw so-and-so, and I talked to so-and-so, somebody I, I know or used to know, and, you know, and all, they're, they're off the deep end. And that can get the best of us. It can get the best of me. And sure, I'm going to pretend like it's water off a duck's back and no big deal, you know. And This is 
devastating. So what do I need to do? I need to do what you do. God, help. Help me. God, help me. And I'm crying out to you not as a desperate person who is trying to get through to an unjust judge. I'm crying out to you as a desperate person and you call me your elect in Christ. So with a certain amount of confidence. In so many ways, I have to say, I am more encouraged and and thrilled than ever before. I can honestly say, say, if I could say it, I can honestly say in my whole life about, about Christ and what he's done and understanding that and understanding its complexity and its simplicity and more thrill than ever before in, in my whole life with a lie detector test. Did they put it here? I don't know where they put it. But, but in other ways, and maybe it's the season, maybe it's being a Christian longer, maybe it's just, you know, whatever. In other ways, I'm more discouraged than ever. I'm like, this is, this is, this is terrible. So to the degree that you can relate to that, or you will be able to relate to that, this instruction, this parable is for me and it's for you. God, help. Because I know you care. I know you're in charge. So much so you even elect. Hopefully that encourages you and helps you to not lose heart. Do not lose heart is the emphasis of what he's getting at. hopefully it will encourage you today to be reminded about what God has done for his elect. Let's go ahead and use that phrase. In Christ Jesus, Allah, Romans chapter 8, because God chose before the foundation of the world in Christ Jesus to save, irreversibly save. He sends his son to live a perfect life, to be treated as if he lived a sinful life though he didn't and then to be victoriously raised from the dead first born among many it's the most encouraging thing of all he ascended promised to come back the same way he left and just so we don't take our eyes off the ball which we do so naturally he said Do this in remembrance of me until I come again. And so we're going to have a little coming to Jesus meeting now. Um, Remembering really it's all about him and his finished work and we're trusting in him who did this for those who the Father had chosen before the foundation of the world. And surely he'll care for us given that he's done that. So this is for you if you're a Christian. We eat bread. It's bread. And we drink wine and it's wine. Because they symbolize the body and the blood of Jesus because he gave himself up for us so that we could be reconciled to God. And so that we might remember that we come to God on his terms, not on our terms. And so we're going to eat and drink together in remembrance of Christ. May it be worship. May it be encouraging. May it be a great reminder to us about what our Lord Jesus has done for us. Father, thank you so much for our time in your word today. Thank you that Jesus in his perfect wisdom gave us 
helpful instruction to be able to deal with broken lives and broken relationships. Thank you that you were in Christ reconciling the world to yourself, as the scripture says. Thank you that you are a God of grace and mercy and compassion, that you don't hold our sins against us because Christ bore them for us. And thank you that he has promised to come again and while we live in this complicated in-between time, may our hearts not be broken and uh, may Christ be glorified in the joy that we have in him. In Jesus' name, amen.